And do you say phyloxenia or philoxenia? Oh, um, I, I was I fine. Philo. With e- yeah, I was fine with either until I realized we have to say it out loud. Philo. Oh, philo? I I think I say philo. Phyloxenia. Okay, I'm gonna look it up on YouTube. I don't trust yeah. YouTube though. Philoxenia. What? Oh, whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Now that's biblical Greek, which is if it's like biblical, if it's like Latin of that of ecclesiastical Latin, okay. they're pronounced a little different sometimes. So let me just not okay. do biblical Greek. That'll throw us off. Here, this is better. Oh, philozenia. Yeah, philozenia. Philozenia. I can't. Philozenia. It's the problematic. Philozenia. It's the entire episode. Philozenia. We can just cut and taste his pronunciation every time we. We try to say it. That would be the best. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny? Today's yeah. topic is philosophia. <laughs> I oh also loved how immediately after the biblical pronunciation, you launched into a complete defense on why we're not doing that. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not pronouncing it that way. Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 129. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are talking about the virtue of hospitality. Google the term tips for hosting a party and you will be inundated with a plethora of results and lists and articles eager to help your to-do be a smashing success. Google tips for hosting overnight guests and you'll come up with the same. But underlying all that helpful advice on being good hosts and hostesses is the desire to extend goodwill and love to others in service. And these are the roots of something deeper, hospitality. But first, the best way that you can support the Modern Lady Podcast is by giving us a rating and a review on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews, especially on iTunes, can really help others who might be interested to find our podcast too. Your comments mean the world to us. This week's shout-out goes to listener Abigail Olson, who sent a DM to Lindsay on Instagram last week and said, quote, Hi, Lindsay. This is a sort of random reach-out from an internet stranger, but I am a longtime listener of the podcast. This week at church, I learned a new word, philoxenia, which means love of stranger, but loosely translates to hospitality. While you have covered hospitality topics before, I think that you and Michelle might find it interesting like I did. Thank you both so much for being an encouraging voice." End quote. Well, thank you so much, Abigail, for your message and for your suggestion. We loved hearing your thoughts on this potential episode topic, and we are very grateful that you sent this to us. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com. Or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. Last week, we learned about what the color of the exterior of your house says about you. And this week, we are going a little more personal. 
This tip of the week was inspired by a video I watched that talked about how lipstick was not rationed during World War II and how much of a morale booster it was. Now, we've actually talked about this on a previous episode, but they said something else that jumped out at me that was all about how much the men fighting overseas loved getting a lipstick kiss mark on their letters from home. And we love a fun personality test. So ladies, here's what your lipstick kiss mark says about you. Turns out there are people who are trained face and lip readers, and I'm not talking about the people who aid the hearing impaired community. These people use a modern adaptation of Chinese face reading and take into account your choice of lipstick color, the shape of your kiss, and how hard you pressed your lips against the paper. Beth Bonger is one of these lipstick readers, and she gave an interview to popsugar.com. She started by sharing about the history of Chinese face reading, which was a practice done by mothers who believed that facial characteristics could indicate who would be the most fertile choice for their sons to marry. According to this ancient tradition, diamond-shaped lips were the strongest indicator of fertility. After that, you could fare well with a triangular-lipped woman, as she would be helpful and caring. And if she was nowhere to be found, a square-lipped woman would be a practical and thrifty wife, and this was of great value too. So back to modern lips and lipstick. Beth started with what shape the actual lipstick is first. This just sent me back in time um, to when I read a magazine article about this when I was a teenager. So like, for instance, if your lipstick um, bullet, so that's the actual lipstick part, is curved in a C shape, you are creative, loyal, romantic, and a dreamer. What about a rounded tip? You are organized and tidy. You are also a great host. A pointed lipstick tip. Well, you're a sharpshooter, a type A personality. And if your lipstick has a flat top, you are a rebel who is fearless. You dive in and give it your all. Now, the next thing to consider is how many lines are present in the lipstick kiss print. The more lines, the more stressed out the woman is. Okay, kiss print shapes. Diamond. A successful woman. She's good at debating. She's independent and self-motivated, but she also loves having people devoted to her. Square. If your kiss is square-shaped, then you have similarly sized upper and lower lips. You are optimistic, smart, curious, and eager to learn. You are also honest and trustworthy. Triangle. Now the image I saw of this shape is flatter across the top and the bottom lip kind of comes to a soft point in the bottom middle. If this is your lipstick shape, you want to help people recognize their strengths. You are a what-you-see-is-what-you-get type of person. And finally, we're back to the diamond shape, but this time it's quite a puckered diamond. Beth Bonger suggests that this lady is a perfectionist. She is confident and reliable, eloquent, yet they might struggle with their finances. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. If the description here doesn't seem to match you, fear not, because there are countless articles with other descriptions about your lipstick shapes and lip shapes. Oh my goodness. Okay. (laughs) What about those of us who don't wear lipstick very often? (gasps) What? Do I not exist? (laughs) No, no, you are, you are a non-person. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Time to go buy lipstick. No, I I will when I go out, but just on a, on a everyday basis, I often don't put on lipstick. (laughs) I'll just add here. No lipstick. Totally busy mom. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's a good description. Yes. American poet Maya Angelou once said, People will forget what you said, forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. End quote. When we think about the spirit of true hospitality, this is the underscored sentiment. 
a deliberate and intentional effort to welcome a person into your space and your world. Right, Lindsay? Yes, Michelle, that's right. Now, back in 2018, when we were still a brand new podcast, we interviewed our friend and hostess extraordinaire, Anita Healy, and she shared with us her philosophy of being a good hostess, and she shared lots of great tips. That episode, it's a favorite of many of our listeners, and you and I love that one too. Mm And then we've also talked many times, especially in our tip of the week um, segment about being a good hostess, sharing helpful and often funny (laughs) etiquette and hostessing tips. But this topic, um, specifically phylloxenia, am I doing that okay, Michelle? Um, Phylloxenia? Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Stressing about that. Um, It goes beyond hostessing tips, right? Like you were saying in the intro, Mm -hmm. it it dives deep into the philosophy behind hospitality. And now that many people are opening up their homes again for dinner parties and birthdays and other gatherings, um, let's look at this virtue of hospitality. And just once again, thank you to listener Abigail Olson for suggesting this topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we thought this was such an interesting topic, like you said, because it's kind of coming at a time when we're opening our homes back up to people. Again, yeah. right? Um, or you, at least considering it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that sometimes we can get stuck up on the details of hosting mm-hmm. and hospitality. But the more I thought about it as we were doing research for this episode, the more I realized that if we kind of revisit and can refamiliarize ourselves with the why and the spirit uh, and the virtue of hospitality, then that kind of, um, A, lessens the load of all the details, but also it kind of orients how then we'll make it all happen. Yeah. It's like a foundation yeah. um, that you build all of those other things on, which vary culture to culture, family to family, based on your economic status. All of, like, all of that is changeable and interchangeable, right? Yeah. But this foundation of the virtue of being hospitable, it seems to be universal and timeless based on our research. Mm-hmm. So what does the word mean, philozenia? Well, it's an ancient Greek virtue of hospitality, and it literally means friend to a stranger. Uh, When I was doing my research, hospitality kept being referred to not only as having people over to our homes for dinner, etc., but also how a country welcomes visitors to it. I kept coming across that like in a country Mm. sense, especially many European countries, because so much of their economy depends on tourism. So Mm. they are really they talk a lot about being hospitable countries. And it's especially important for Greece, where this idea seemed to have first originated, at least this term. Right. Um, Yeah. first originated. So I did read an article on GreekReporter.com and and it said that it's not uncommon for Greeks to invite people in that they've just met uh, for a home cooked Mm. meal that they call a spatiko. Um, And if you're a foreigner visiting their village, they'll even drop off some local foods for you like cheese or spinach pies and olive oil. They're so proud of their culture and they want to share it with everyone who comes to visit. They are incredibly Mm. friendly to strangers. Yeah, I find I found that too during research as well, like the whole um, very common in Europe, but also in Eastern countries as well. Like mm. this idea of it's like a nationwide yeah, uh, mentality yeah. of hospitality. I find that so interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about like uh, other cultures around the world. But 
yeah, it really seems to have a strong origin in Greece with this phylloxenia. And mm-hmm. I loved the origin story. I love a good origin story. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. <laughs> um, and this one, uh, phylloxenia, is found in Metamorphoses, which is a collection of myths written by the Roman poet Ovid in the year 8 AD. So the story goes that the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes were disguised as poor travelers, and they were going around asking hospitality um, throughout a village. And all the other villagers rejected the gods because they were uninvited guests. But there was an elderly couple named Baucis and Philemon who offered refuge for the night, and they welcomed these disguised gods into their home, and they generously served them with food and wine. Now, as she continued to repeatedly fill her guests' cups, Baucis realized that the wine was never running low, and she started to figure out that these must be gods in her presence. So she then offered their only goose to be slaughtered and served to the gods out of honor. And touched by her gesture, Zeus rewarded Baucis and Philemon by turning their humble home into a beautiful stone temple. And he granted them their ultimate wishes, which was to guard the temple forever, to die at the same time, and to stay together for eternity. So Zeus turned them into a pair of trees that flanked each side of the temple's doors where they remained forever. So this is um, the origin story behind Philoxenia, which is, yeah, this idea of welcoming the stranger into your home. Um, And this really encapsulates the first instance of this according to Greek mythology. Oh, I love that so much. And even though it was written at that period, like with so many myths, it was probably passed down verbally, you know, for hundreds of years before that. So it's a very old origin story. Now, another way that modern day Greeks embody this virtue of philoxenia is if you're in their village and you ask for directions, they'll not only tell you where to go. If they can, they'll actually become your personal tour guide and they'll take you there themselves, telling you these stories, including these myths um, Mm. along the way. And and they'll tell you about the town and there's a very good chance they'll invite you into their home for coffee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was reading that too, that like this accompanying guests, like not just pointing them in the right direction, but you like become almost in a way like responsible for their care. Like that's how deep the hospitality runs. You've taken on their care onto yourself. Um, And I, yeah, I just found it so interesting, like how deep it goes. And like in ancient Greek times, like there would be inns and boarding houses, but they were not very common. And I think they were considered lowly. And so travelers were more likely to show up on the doorstep of like a friend of a friend or they would have like a network of contacts and uh, I was reading that hosts if that were to happen to you they they would be duty bound to offer that guest um, hospitality by way of food drink and bath uh, before any questions were even asked and that guests conversely then they were duty bound to be courteous polite and not burdensome to the host. So there was like this code, it seems, in ancient Greek times um, that really has developed into a culture even up to the modern day in Greece. So let's look at the Judeo-Christian teachings then um, that were starting, you know, right after those Greek myths, like that was written mm-hmm. by Ovid in the um, in the year 8, right? The year 8 yes. to 80. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. 
we're going to look at the gospel parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, this is in Luke chapter 10. Now, what I love about Luke chapter 10 is that it actually opens with Jesus appointing 72 new missionaries, I guess, to go out in mm. pairs of two to every town and place that he was planning on visiting. Jesus told them not to carry with them any money, no sack, and not even sandals. He then told them that whatever house they enter first, they must say, peace to this house. And if it is a peaceful person that lives there, their peace will be returned. And if not, it will not return to them. He then tells them to stay in that house and to eat and drink whatever is offered to them. He tells them to heal their sick and to say to both those who welcome them and those towns that reject them, the words, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this statement will either fill the occupants with great joy and anticipation or with fear and trembling. That that same statement can mean the two different things, right? Mm. He tells the 72, quote, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me, end quote. Now, what does this have to do with hospitality? While these new disciples were being taught how to be guests, like what you were saying about the unspoken code in ancient Greece, right? Mm -hmm. How to enter towns and villages unknown to them. But Luke chapter 10 continues. Here Jesus is asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now Jesus gives us the greatest commandment that you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your being and with all your strength, with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But what does this look like? Ah, now Mm. we're still in Luke chapter 10. This will all make sense in a minute. (laughs) We meet the Good Samaritan. We have learned what type of hospitality we will encounter, good and bad, as witnesses of Christ. And then we have learned how to love everyone, regardless of how they welcome us. Jesus is clear that their judgment will be from God. And now we're seeing this in action. Um, Mm. And it opens with the scholar of the law asking Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And then Mm. Jesus tells about a man who has been traveling and has been beaten badly and was robbed. He was left on the side of the road half dead. He was passed by by a priest. He was then passed by by a Levite, both of whom are religious representatives of Judaism. And then a Samaritan traveler. And Samaritans were traditionally enemies of the Jews. And it was the Samaritan that saw him and he was moved with compassion. He poured oil on his wounds and dressed them. He placed him on his own animal and brought him into town and paid for lodging and even even told the innkeepers that if they spent more on him, that he would return and pay whatever extra was owing. This is Philozenia. Jesus then said, go and do likewise. Now I'm almost done with Luke chapter 10 because the theme actually continues because we move right into the story of Martha and Mary, which is another excellent example of what hospitality should look like, right? Uh Uh-huh. Martha, quote, burdened much with serving. I'm like, could there be a more perfect description of my attitude? Oh, the burdened, Bible just right so directly hits. sometimes. Yeah. Burdened much with serving. Um, she grew frustrated because her sister Mary sat at Jesus's feet, listened to him speaking. Now, of course, the meal needed to be made, tasks needed to be done, but Jesus calls out Martha for her attitude as a hostess, right? In particular, Mm. it was her attitude. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. So I just love that Luke chapter 10 kind of takes us through like the visitors going to places they've never been before, um, what kind of like guests they should be. 
um, what the hostess um, and host should be like, but then into how to treat our neighbors and then into an, um, another concrete example of two different types of hostesses. It's all there in Luke chapter 10. Oh my goodness. I had no idea. Like I never um, realized that Luke mm-hmm. chapter 10 was basically the <laughs> hostess manifesto. Yes. <laughs> That is amazing. Um, And for the record, I'm laughing because I'm a total Mary when it comes to hospitality. I'm the opposite where, like, if you come to my house, you're kind of in danger of never eating (laughs) because I'm so engaged with what you have to say. So I'm always actually a little bit sympathetic personally to Martha because Mm -hmm. I am a Mary and Mm -hmm. I know that my husband is actually much better at keeping things like logistically going. Yeah. Um, And I appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate the Marthas and know that I also need to work a little bit more on that. I also, I know this isn't a whole episode on Luke chapter 10, but I just have to say. (laughs) Feels like it. (laughs) I I I shared a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I, I don't know. I, I do know that probably the whole scene in real life was more fleshed out than what we read in the gospels (laughs) and I do feel like it wasn't all put on Martha like probably Mary probably got up and helped after that yeah (laughs) so there's like a little give and take there but a balance is necessary um but I do love like the Judeo-Christian roots of hospitality uh, are so um complementary to what we were just talking about with philoxenia right like uh, and it's all throughout scriptures even yeah. like way back in the old testament we have stories of like abraham hosting yes. like the three strangers how um even abraham's servant remember yeah. when he had to go and find a wife for mm-hmm. who was was it isaac mm-hmm. i think it was isaac sure. um <laughs> and he met rebecca and it was rebecca's hospitality to this stranger that um, convinced him he, she would be the perfect wife. Yeah. Um, and so even from way, way back and in Mosaic law in Leviticus, right, they have like a direct instruction to the Jewish people. Um, I think it's in Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. End quote. Yes. And I loved that because even like then as we progress into the Gospels and Jesus's teachings on hospitality and how you should treat other people and why you should offer um, this love and service to other people. There's a connection um, that was made on ChristianStudyLibrary.org that it's because Christ himself showed us love first Mm -hmm. while we Mm -hmm. were strangers, (laughs) Mm -hmm. separated to him by sin, by giving his life, you know, so that we might have life. And so I just like it's so it's so much deeper and so well, like, yeah, the physical attention to detail, um, individual food type planning things is important. Yeah, I think we're really seeing that the whole spirit of the thing is what moves the the virtue of hospitality forward. Yes, and that Old Testament story that you're referring to that all Jews would have known about Abraham hosting the three strangers. I mean, that was referenced mm-hmm. in the letter to the Hebrews where it says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Yes. Yeah, and I love that quote. Um 
What a stark reminder. And that, again, let's just continue making connections. This is my favorite game. <laughs> yes. Um, like in Matthew's gospel, um, mm. he ha- Jesus has that whole discourse of like, for I was hungry and you gave yes. me food. I yes. was thirsty and gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Right. And so yeah. like you could be hosting, not to put pressure on people now, right. <laughs> right. but you could be hosting your neighbor or an angel or Jesus himself. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> In disguise. <laughs> yep. And we say yeah. that to our kids all the time when we give money to people, you know, um, we have a yeah. lot of them who stand at the intersections and whatever change we have. And we say to the kids all the time, we don't know who the, know who that person is. And it is such a reminder of that. And we, we did that whole episode on the corporal works of mercy, right? Which yeah. I loved. And we talked then about how if we look at anybody who comes into our house as a pilgrim, because they're mm. all on their own journey towards heaven, oh, yes. right? Whether they know they are or they aren't. And so everyone is a type of pilgrim, whether they, again, understand that concept or not, or they accept that they're on that journey. So everyone is a pilgrim and we are a stop on their pilgrimage. And so wow. it, it is a, it can be a, a holy and sacred interaction every time someone comes into our house. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so much of this concept was exemplified by the monks who cared for anyone seeking a meal and shelter for centuries. Now, this mm-hmm. happened particularly throughout Europe, but of course it isn't exclusive to Europe, but that is just where I'm focusing right now. Now, what's so interesting is that the very word monasticism is a term that comes from the Greek word monikos, which means solitary person. Early Mm. monasticism saw men withdrawing from society into often very harsh conditions, right? Depriving themselves of food and water in an effort to withstand temptations to offer up their suffering and so on. But then in the fourth century, a former Roman soldier named Pacamayas created the first Cenobitic or communal monastery. Now men who shared the same approach and aesthetic lifestyle could live, work, and pray together. And then obviously groups of women formed too, and there were nuns (laughs) and Mm -hmm. nun communities. Now throughout the Middle Ages, monks and nuns, despite their separation from the world, were essential members of their communities. They provided many, if not most, of the practical services, such as housing for travelers, nursing the sick, assisting the poor. Mm-hmm. And aside from their practice of philoxenia, their communities contribute to the medieval culture in some of the greatest ways, like they're in their buildings, their music, writing, artwork, and education, not only of young men, but also of young women. Mm-hmm. So what about when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries? Well, the stories, and there are plenty of them, are truly horrific and widespread. Um, it's a very awful time, but here's what dailyhistory.org has to say. When they were dissolved almost overnight, many social services simply disappeared. There were fewer schools, hospitals, and less poor relief, despite the promise made by Henry that the wealth of the monasteries would be used to help the poor. The dissolution of the monasteries caused immense social problems and the poor and the ordinary people suffered greatly thus. Many commentators noted after the suppression in the the monasteries that beggars and vagrants became more noticeable in England and the social problems such as crime increased significantly, end quote. From what I understand, it was almost 300 years until England created a social services system with the Victorians um, that was meant to help the poor, but it resulted in the notorious workhouses, which were the complete Mm. opposite of philoxenia. So, yeah, it's something it's really hard to actually separate um, 
the monastic history and the history of our nunneries um, with mm-hmm. uh, with their absolute dedication to being open and hospitable places for anybody that needed anything. And these are people who removed themselves from society, but yet yeah. completely exemplified philozenia. That is... <laughs> That is such a tragic story. I like know. that is such a sad point of history when you consider yeah. what was lost. Yeah. And I think yeah, I think to tie it into all the history and the biblical history of what we're talking about. Like these were these were people who were motivated by um something supernatural and yes. like with a motivation and a purpose that was above them and above humanity right yeah. this this was christ they were seeing christ in every person and when we're able to look at a person and see the dignity and see christ in them we do treat them differently and mm-hmm. i think that's what the monasteries and the nunneries and the convents taught people how to do through their silent and service oriented catechesis right like they probably didn't hold workshops to teach people like this is how you should care for other people but yeah yeah, those villages those communities would have known by their example um, exactly what they thought of the human person exactly what they believed to be true about their intrinsic dignity and the respect that we're supposed to show them through our hospitality and our charity towards others they lived the gospel message, right? They mm-hmm. walked the walk and it is incredible. And this actually really ties back into another comment our listener, Abigail Olson, made when she um, DM'd me. We, we furthered this conversation and she said, and I'm going to quote her directly here with her permission. She said, quote, God is always in a posture of embrace, like a hug, seeking mm. us wherever we are, hoping that we will turn to him and embrace him. Similarly, we should seek to embrace everyone recognizing that others may not embrace us, but to not allow that rejection to change our posture, end quote. She went on to say, philozenia and hospitality in general can look a lot like offering acts of service and kindness, even talking to the cashier when we are buying groceries or making the sign of peace with newcomers at church. And I just love this description so much, picturing God always in that posture of embrace and wanting mm-hmm. then to bring his love to others by us modeling that same behavior. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do love that because I was actually just thinking about how hospitality can be even furthered from the concept of opening up your physical house, mm-hmm. right? Like this true spirit, this virtue of hospitality, it is more of an embrace. It's almost like um, taking it one step further from opening up your house to people. Um, you're opening up your own heart to house yes. another heart for a time. You know what I mean? And that's like that embracing picture, that image. And I really love that because you can practice then hospitality everywhere and at all times. And, you know, when we talk about like the Good Samaritan parable and stuff like that, I think, I think that goes along with, with that concept. So you and I both looked at um, two different like cultural expressions of this that went beyond, you know, the Greek mythology and their origins and then the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. concept. And you found out something about hospitality in Japan, right, Michelle? Yes. Yeah, I was really keen to look into um, some of the more Eastern countries and how they view hospitality, because I know that it is um, 
it really actually does naturally embrace what we've talked about this whole episode, which is the complete care and concern for the needs of the guest, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that drives everything else they do, every other detail. And so in particular, I came across a, a Japanese uh, term called omotenashi. Mm-hmm. And this is the culture of hospitality. Um, I just love its origins. Uh, once again, love a good origin story. <laughs> <laughs> um, the This whole concept of omotenashi is said to have started with a Japanese tea master named Sen Rikyu, who lived in the 1500s. And he was the one who perfected the tea ceremony. Mm. Yes, uh, he developed it into the art form that it is today in Japanese culture. And he, what he did was he refined it into this special moment that's shared between the host and the guest. So Rikyu said of the tea ceremony that it is, in Japanese, the term is Ichigo Ichi, which translates to a once-in-a-lifetime experience, mm. and that every encounter between a guest and their host is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for both people, which means that every moment spent with another person is laden with significance and it should be honored because it's a moment that has never and will never happen again. Isn't that beautiful? It. I love it. I, I love, love it. it. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. Me too. I was like, whoa, well, when you say it like that, <laughs> uh-huh. that makes a lot of sense. So the concept of omotenashi is derived from three different expressions. They have ura omotenashi, which means having no sides. And it's the concept of not being two-faced, being very honest, very open. This is like a keystone of Japanese hospitality culture because they want the guest to feel safe and to trust. And so they hide nothing. Um, the second expression is called monomate nashitegeru, okay. I think, which <laughs> means wholeheartedly carrying through to the end. It's mm. perseverance, commitment, ah. and determination. Yes. <laughs> and then the last one is motenasu, which means to entertain. Mm. And so these three expressions find their way into the three fundamental principles of hospitality, which is anticipating needs expressing gratitude and attention to detail. Mm. They're cornerstones that started in this idea of the tea ceremony of the once in a lifetime um, interaction between guest and host, but that have since actually found their way into just general Japanese culture in general. Mm. So like, for example, with anticipating needs in a hosting sense, in a hospitality sense, it would be like, Um, you're preparing to surprise and delight your guests. You're preparing to treat them in a way that you would like to be treated. But in the culture, it might show up in retail as like they would wrap their purchases, your purchases individually. Mm -hmm. They'll cover their shopping bags in plastic just in case there's rain to protect your purchase. Um, In terms of like attention to detail, for example, the Japanese hospitality puts so much importance on this hidden but meaningful way of letting a guest know how much they're honored and valued. And it's kind of different than what we might practice here in the West with hospitality, where sometimes the things that we do for a guest, um, it does kind of present the trouble that we've gone to, even if mm-hmm. we don't mean for it to come across that way. Mm-hmm. It just seems like in um, in Japan, at least, this effort is above and beyond, but they 
try to make it so natural that you'd probably miss it if you aren't paying attention. Right. Because can I just say it's like, oh, yeah, I feel like here we have a tendency to show off a bit like we want to when we're hosting things it is about us right the intention is kind of more on like us and what we're doing for them but it's truly like a letting go of ego when it's about serving their guest and making the experience all about them and them kind of disappearing into that Mm -hmm. yes exactly exactly and so that's why I was saying like we don't mean for that to be the case but it Mm -hmm. is more just like the idea here we we want to show them a good time yeah. That type of mentality. Whereas I do find, I did find in researching the Japanese culture, it was more about like, we want to show you how important you are to us. Yeah. Um, so for example, they'd have like little details like the flowers that they picked for the table setting, they'd pick mm-hmm. them to match the guest's personality. Um, they will hand a cup to the person in the direction already facing where the guest can just take it from them and drink mm-hmm. without having to turn for the handle Mm -hmm. um this again is practiced in the wider culture and in one article i read in the hotels for example slippers are laid out for guests pointing in the direction they will probably be walking so that you can just step out of your shoes into their slippers and continue walking without having to change directions or they'll they'll hand you say a newspaper but they'll hand it to you in the direction facing you so you can just start reading it without having to open or turn it or anything like that. So that's like the attention to detail and the anticipation that is so cornerstone to how um, not only someone might welcome you into their individual home, but again, like what we were saying nationwide, that that's how they understand how they're to welcome strangers into their um, country even. Oh my goodness. I love this so much to me. This mm-hmm. is like giving, it's inspiring me to level up as a homemaker. Yes, um, me too. Right. Not just as like when we have company, but for my family, as I serve them, like extra detail and just wanting to like, again, distance my own ego from it and just like do those to really anticipate their needs in a new way. I want, I'm going to level up to this. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was just going to say like, I, I think I was most struck, I think, by the detail about like picking flowers that match mm-hmm. your guest's personality. Like what you were saying, even if it's just within our home with our own families, yeah, that little bit of delight is often, I think, what we're going for when we talk about homemaking and making yeah. things lovely. Like what, for example, what daughter wouldn't find it touching if you came home from the grocery store and you were to say like I saw these flowers and I thought they were so bright and Mm -hmm. so cheerful and they reminded me of you and I thought Mm -hmm. we could put this on the table like I I guess that's all hospitality and (sighs) even hospitality to our nearest and dearest oh I love it and so while I was looking at the Japanese culture, Lindsay, you are also finding similar concepts even in Africa, right? Yeah, yeah. So I looked into something called Ubuntu, which is spelled U-B-U-N-T-U. And it's mm-hmm. a Nigiri Bantu term. Now the Nigiri Bantu languages are spoken by a lot of people in Southern Africa. And it means humanity, but it also means I am because you are. I am because we are. In Zulu, it means humanity towards other. And in another language from Zimbabwe, it means the belief in the universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. The word Mbutu is slightly different depending on which Bantu language you're using, but we will use 
Ubuntu. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> and now African intellectual historian Michael Onyebunchi Azi summarized it like this. A person is a person through other people that we belong to each other. We are because you are since you are definitely I am. Mm. which is just so much wow. to unpack. Um, yeah. Now, what does this have to do with phylloxenia? Well, these African communities are, quote, extroverted communities. That's the term that they use. Um, now, I have read that their extreme sense of community, that there's an overt display of warmth that they express when strangers visit their communities. Now, they build their communities in this foundational belief of Ubuntu, humans sustaining other humans. Now, this belief also influences how they produce food, their farming practices, the distribution of wealth. It is very much a community effort that is negatively impacted by recent urbanization and bureaucracy. Now, Michael Onyabunchi Ezi makes it clear, though, that this is not the Western idea of socialism. Mutu is the ideal of a shared human experience with a, quote, unconditional recognition and appreciation of individual uniqueness and difference, end quote. It is the understanding that everyone has different skills and that people are not isolated. And when they work together, they complete themselves. Now, I read um, an abstract of an essay called The Interplay of Ubuntu and Hospitality as Defining Tenets in Africa and South Africa Ethics, a Christian Ethics Reflection. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Long title, excellent title. And this part jumped out at me, quote, Ubuntu should shift to Ubuntu with Christ together as a bond, as Ubuntu seeks to restore African communal cultural behaviors. Hospitality should be practiced by doing or reflecting on things which might look insignificant, such as supporting the vulnerable, the marginalized, and the migrants that come to South Africa from neighboring African countries that bear the brunt of xenophobic acts. End quote. Now, I am because you are. This is a beautiful follow-up to the lesson taught by Christ that we are all created in the image of God, equal in dignity. If we can grasp that, then we can see the personhood of the other. And when we treat them as neighbor, we become fully human. We become what we are meant to be when we do as we should. Now, Fulton Sheen says a pencil only becomes a pencil when it puts a mark on paper. So mm -hmm. I am because you are. I just love that concept of just total and radical hospitality, um, especially with so many warring nations and tribes and, and the history of Africa. Um, I just love that they, that all of Southern Africa really has embraced this concept. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think I'm going to be mulling that line for a long mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. I am. What is it again? <laughs> I am I because am. you are, but then they continue right. it with, we are because you are and since you are, definitely I am. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Definitely going to be reflecting on that <laughs> Yes. Yeah. for a long time. But I think what strikes me most about that is what you were saying, the oneness concept, yes. especially yes. right now, it, like all over the world, there is such division. Yeah. Um, there's us versus them, which is like the complete opposite of Ubuntu. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, and so I think this idea is so beautiful that it's not just a mentality, but it is a practice and it's mm -hmm. a, an entire culture and a way of living to see oh, myself as a part of everyone else. Um, and so whatever 
I can extend, however I can love, not only goes into the community, but comes back to me as well. And mm-hmm. it's it's just the concept of unity that so many of us want, but I think we've lost our way so thoroughly right now um, globally that, um, yeah, this is a, a great line to come back to in the search of that. Yes, Michelle, you are so right. We have been so closed off from many friends and family over the last two years. And as countries, we've been pretty isolated. So as our homes and our borders open back up, we have this chance to refine our practices of hospitality. We can all improve in this area. Perhaps we are more welcoming to immigrants or travelers than we are to our own family, or perhaps it's the other way around. The ancient Greeks were taught through myth to welcome visitors. They practiced this virtue of philoxenia, and it has been passed down over the millennia through generations, and it is a quality that many Greeks are still so proud of today. Was it Zeus they were entertaining in disguise? They didn't know, so it was best to treat everyone with the same respect. And then the Judeo-Christian culture enhanced this teaching with their Old Testament stories of angels coming in disguise, and then Jesus commanding us to love our neighbor, and better yet, to love our enemies. Our homes and hearts can only grow larger in a mysterious way when we open them up to others. Our ancestors knew this, and they often had far less than we do, but they seem to just grasp this universal concept of charitable love, this eternal notion that we are united, family and friends, travelers and pilgrims, and that who really knows who we are entertaining, they could be angels in disguise. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? Well, this is actually a continuation of last week. Um, Mm. I'm still watching shows that my 13-year-old son Deacon chooses to watch, and he picked a good one. So we watched Return to Space on Netflix, and I was actually Mm. very much surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Um, It's very long. It's over two hours in length, but I was riveted the whole time. So it's all about how NASA needed to partner with private corporations in order to send humans back into space from the United States after their shuttle program was shut down in 2011. First of all, I had no idea that their shuttle program was like shut down. I know nothing about NASA. (laughs) Um, And I didn't know that um, any American astronauts who wanted to go into space had to do so through Russia. It's very interesting. And they were like, what's the one skill you should learn if you're going to be an astronaut? And it was learn Russian. Um, So I didn't know that like that they were not able to fund this anymore and that they needed to like open up to private enterprise. So in comes Elon Musk. Now I'll Uh also say here, I have no idea really about Elon Musk aside from that. He just bought Twitter, um, that he has a Canadian mother and that he created Tesla's like, I, I don't know anything about the man. And so I'm not commenting on his character. Um, I don't know if he's part of the new world order or anything that people will say. (laughs) I just want to say I went into it with a totally open mind and I was actually super impressed with how much work he's done with SpaceX over the last 20 years. Like I just thought maybe he was just this super rich guy, like playing with rockets. Right. But it's not that case at all. Like he was Oh, fully invested and knows everything that's going on. And then you also got to learn about by the time they had done all of the testing over such a long period of time, the two 
first men that they sent up in the SpaceX rocket. You get to know them and their wives who are also very respected astronauts in their own right, which was so cool too. So anyways, I'm glad I watched it and I'd highly recommend Return to Space. It is basically the story of Elon Musk and SpaceX. That sounds so interesting. Mm. I'm with you in that I... (laughs) My space history <laughs> is a little bit lacking. There was the moon landing, and then yeah. there's you recommending Return to Space <laughs> to me today. Yes. <laughs> yep. Watched a lot of movies about space, yeah. but um, they're sci-fi, so yes. <laughs> this will be nice to get back into a little bit of space nonfiction. <laughs> yes, it's really cool. So yeah, mm. I loved it. So what have you been loving this week, Michelle? So I've been loving a YouTube channel that you actually recommended to me, Lindsay, a few months ago, and then you reminded me of it again a few weeks back, and it's honestly been one of the things our family has really loved watching after dinner these days. Um, So the name of the channel is Cyprian Outdoor Adventures on YouTube, and I tried to look up some information specifically about him, like the guy Mm. in the videos, but there doesn't seem to be very much, so I'll just have to tell you more about what he does, Uh, and that honestly just suits just fine, because he does a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So um, his YouTube channel features him surviving in the wilderness using bushcraft skills, and it's honestly so mesmerizing. This is a silent vlog. It's similar to Liziki or Hammy Mommy, um, both of which we've recommended here on the podcast too, in that he doesn't speak and he doesn't even include captions. It's just all about the bushcraft. So he's just out here in the wilderness building shelters and earth huts out of nothing and watching legit tiny houses begin to take shape is so neat. Our family was recently most impressed by his use of vines as ropes to hold together the small logs that make up one of these survival shelters. So Cyprian Outdoor Adventures on YouTube. It's relaxing to watch, it's interesting, and it's so much fun. It's definitely inspired my boys in particular to want to get out into the woods and bushcraft some hut or something together out of sticks they find. So it's safe to say that these videos are motivating in the best possible way. And I really recommend that you check it out. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. <laughs>